Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. It was a beautiful day in Milan, Italy. Our Reformation tour group had gathered outside of Il Duomo, that magnificent cathedral in Milan. 600 years in the building, it covers about 110,000 square feet of surface space. The city square out in front is large and ample to be able to back away and try to take in the majesty of Il Duomo's architecture. The day we were there was packed with people, so our cluster had moved away a little bit farther away from the dome so that we could get a sense of what it was like as the tour guide explained to us its history and its architecture. It was just our group clustered there together. We were all looking up and taking it in as we were listening. And then our daughter Miranda kind of eased her way over to me. She kind of nudged up against me and motioned with her face and said, Daddy, those girls are going to try to rob us. And I said, what girls? Shh. Those girls right over there. And I looked. I saw one young woman, maybe 20 years old, nicely dressed, attractive young woman, wearing a, a large handbag, I guess is what you'd call it. Looking showed there was another one, maybe two. She had this handbag clutched to her breast in front of her like this, but as I looked more closely, I realized that she had her other hand behind the handbag where you couldn't see it, except it was reaching out on the other side. And she was right close to an elderly, older gentleman in our group, and her eyes were focused on his rather loose-fitting pants, providing a very, very easy pocket to pick. I looked at that in some surprise, and the word kind of spread quickly in whispers throughout our group, and pretty soon quite a number were staring at her just as I was, and they were staring at the other girls as well. Well, these were sharp young women, no doubt about it, ever on the alert, and they picked up rather quickly that they were the focus of attention, quiet attention by the members of the group. It was less than a minute that they evaporated into the crowd. We saw them two or three times later throughout the day. Saw one of them standing outside a store as though in guard, and then the other two came out and they immediately disappeared into the crowd. I was thinking about that day in front of Il Duomo this past week. And as I was thinking about it, an, an image came to mind. It's my own imagination, I understand, but I venture to guess not too far from the truth. What came to mind for me was, was the end of the day. Three girls gathered around a bed, emptying the contents of their bags onto the bed. There they saw the contents, the purses, the wallets, the money, the keys, the credit cards, the phones, the passports. 
And they were looking at each other and asking, how was it? How did we do today? Did we have a good take today? And then my mind focused in on another imagined image. The image of a man there in the square buying a souvenir, and as he goes to pay for it, reaches into his pocket, and a very puzzled, surprised expression flashes across his face. Another image of a woman and her husband buying gelato, and she's going to pay, and she's rummaging through her purse and rummaging and rummaging, and he says to her, you never can find anything in that purse. And she says, it's, it's not here. What's not there? My wallet. It's gone. I had images come to mind, and then I flash back to the focus, the intensity of that clutch bag, that clutching hand, and the focus on that pocket. I couldn't tell you for certain, but I think the thoughts that must have gone through that young woman's mind were something like this. I know it's yours, but I want it, and I'm going to get it. And it was right about there that I thought of the tenth word, the tenth of the ten words that we have been studying over these weeks. I want to read it to you and see if it doesn't come to mind for you, too, as you think about those young women. It's a short verse, although not as short as the ones in recent weeks. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, it says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You understand, of course, that it's not just those three young women that there are many others who equally are involved in the same type of pursuit. It might be the aggressive developer who sits looking at the map as he has conceived it. He needs that one plot of land. He's already approached the owner two or three times. The owner has been clear in saying, I am not selling you my land. I'm not selling it. It's not for sale. But this developer sits there staring at what could be thinking, there has got to be a way I can get a hold of that property. Or maybe it's the power-hungry second-in-command who sits in his office scheming and dreaming, how can I get the boss's job? Or maybe it's even somebody from Scripture, like King Ahab pining for Naboth's vineyard. Or King David peering, leering, really, over the balustrade, looking at Bathsheba. There are many, biblical world, contemporary world, whose lives run straight into this tenth word. You shall not covet. Now, let's be honest. It's a unique command. It's a unique law. After all, how can you make a law about what people think? 
about what people desire. In fact, it is so unique that as far as we know, there is no other law like it in the ancient world. The closest we come comes from the Code of Hammurabi that has a, a, a precept that has something to do with stealing that you might say could be read to include maybe coveting. But that's it. Other than that, as far as we know, this is a unique law. You shall not covet. It goes straight to the desires, the intents of the heart, the thoughts of the mind. In fact, one scholar says it this way. He says, many of the previous commands have started, you shall not. In other words, don't. This one, he said, actually says, and don't even think about it. <laughs> well, how do you make that a law? Can you imagine getting in your car and driving home today after church and you come to the intersection where you are accustomed to stopping? You see that sign, stop, it says, but now they've passed a new law. And beneath that sign, it says, and don't even think about not stopping because if you think about it, you're breaking the law. We'll issue a citation. How is that possible? A law against what goes on in the heart, in the mind. Well, some say, some scholars in sorting this through say, actually, this tenth word is a summary of all the other words. It's the culmination of them all. Because the truth is, as you go back through the previous nine, you discover that time and again, the act that is prohibited actually begins in the heart. Jesus will point that out later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says it's not just about refraining from killing, it's what's going on in your heart. It's not just about physically committing adultery, it's what's going on in your mind. Thus, say these scholars, this command is a culmination of all the others saying if you are just attentive to what goes on in your heart, what goes on in your mind, your life will be changed. It will be different. It's a unique law. In fact, to get at the heart of what it's saying, I want to share with you two quotes. Two quotes from two different Bible scholars the one with which we begin is the Old Testament scholar, preeminent scholar, Walter Brueggemann. Listen to what Brueggemann writes about this command. The tenth commandment, he writes, on coveting, is somewhat different from the other elements of the second tablet. It concerns the destructive power of desire. It is not helpful, however, to interpret desire as a vague, undifferentiated attitude. Rather, it here concerns desire acted upon publicly, whereby one reaches for that which is not properly one's own. Such reaching inevitably destroys community. Notice that desire in ancient Israel is characteristically not directed towards sexual objects, as we might expect, but pertains primarily to economics. Its concern is to curb the drive to acquisitiveness. Thus, the object of desire may be silver and gold or land. In this prohibition, the primary object of desire is the neighbor's house. That house, however, included wife, reckoned in a patriarchal society as property, slaves, and working animals. 
The command expects that within a community of genuine covenanting, the drive of desire will be displaced by the honoring of neighbor, by the sharing of goods, and by the acceptance of one's own possessions as adequate. This commandment, placed in final position in the Decalogue, is perhaps intended as the climactic statement of the whole, referring to Yahweh's claims at the beginning in the first commandment. In other words, in the first commandment, we focus on the exclusivity of our relationship with God, on how deeply we relate to Him to create a covenantal relationship in which we worship God alone. Now, in this last commandment, we are talking about the covenant of community. What do we do with community so that it remains healthy and vital? Now, the second quote. This, a more brief quote from the scholar David Baker. Carrying on the same general thought, Baker writes, The main contents of the household are specified in decreasing order of importance. Wife, slaves, working animals, and material things. An obvious reason why a wife might be coveted would be sexual attraction. But another would be her economic significance. The dowry was capital that the wife brought into the marriage, and Proverbs 31 emphasizes the major role of Israelite wives in the family economy. Children are noticeably absent from the list. This may be because their function in the family is not primarily economic and thus not as likely to be objects of coveting. Interesting. You don't covet other people's children. <laughs> Somebody sent us some napkins this week. I don't know what was behind it. But the napkins said, we've decided not to have kids. They're taking it pretty hard. <laughs> not sure why we got the napkins. But they weren't objects of coveting, probably, because they didn't have the same economic value. And so the command is don't covet. Don't illicitly desire that which belongs to another. In fact, the word is a very strong word that stays not just with the act of desire, but drives forward almost as if to say, I desire it, and given the opportunity, I will have it. So it causes us to pause and to ask ourselves the question, where do my thoughts linger? What do I spend my time thinking about? Where might I be viewing what others possess as desirable enough that I continue to ruminate over what it would be like to have it as mine? It forces us to ask the question, where do my thoughts linger? That eminently successful animated cartoon series, VeggieTales, often has good lessons to teach. Now, probably most any of you who have had kids grow up in the last decade or two have heard more of, watched more of, listened to more of VeggieTales than you ever wanted to so in the rest of your life. But it has some good lessons some important ones. In fact, there is one episode in VeggieTales 
that is called King George and the Duck. Any parents here have probably seen it. King George and the Duck stars Larry the Cucumber as King George and Bob the Tomato as his sidekick, his faithful servant, Lewis. So King George is in control of the land. But King George isn't focused on what most royalty focuses on, the acquisition of more territories, the defeating of enemy troops in battle, all of those realities. No, he is enamored with one thing, and one thing only in this video. He is enamored with his rubber duck. In fact, King George loves to sit in his tub in the suds of the water, splish, splashing, playing with his rubber duck. And while he does so, he sings a song creatively entitled, I Love My Duck. <laughs> so there he is in the scene, King George and his duck. He's singing, I love my duck. And he's singing about the joys of having this rubber duck. The next thing you see, he's out of the water. He has walked out onto his balcony. And he's overlooking the balcony, surveying all of his subjects who live beneath him. There's some binoculars on the balcony, so he picks them up, and he focuses in on the houses down below, only to suddenly spy Billy. Billy's out on his balcony. Billy's in his tub. Billy is splish-splashing with his rubber duck. And as King George focuses in on Billy, his eyes grow wide with desire. He sees Billy's duck. He turns to Lewis and he says, I want that duck. And Lewis says, but sir, that duck belongs to Billy. That's not your duck. He says, are you suggesting that I should not have exactly what I want? And Lewis, his faithful servant, walks over to a cabinet on the wall, opens the cabinet to show shelves filled with dozens of identical-looking yellow rubber ducks. And he says, but sir, you have all kinds of ducks. And then King George utters the words we should consider. With a sweep of his hand, if cucumbers had hands, he says... Those are yesterday's ducks. Those are yesterday's ducks. I will have what I want. It doesn't matter if it belongs to Billy. That's easy to smile. They're cartoons. That's for kids. Kids desire other kids' rubber ducks. But come, when we became adults, we put away childish things. Well, before you move away too quickly from that, I want his rubber duck, I want you to consider the words of Thomas J. DeLong, senior fellow, fellow on the faculty of Harvard Business School. In this piece written for Fortune magazine back in 2011, DeLong is discussing something called comparison obsession. Comparison obsession. He's talking about some work, some qualitative research he had been doing and writing about the people that he is finding and how they are struggling with this thing called comparison obsession. Listen to what DeLong writes 
a former student of mine who graduated 10 years ago and has a terrific job at a Fortune 500 company still suffers from this comparison obsession. At least it seemed like a terrific job until she received her alumni newsletter and learned that a fellow alumnus who was in the MBA program with her had just been named VP at a Fortune 100 company. From that moment on, she could barely hold a conversation with ma without bemoaning her lack of VP and Fortune 100 company status. On more than one occasion, she told others she felt like a failure. More so than ever before, business executives, Wall Street analysts, lawyers, doctors, and other professionals are obsessed with comparing their own achievements against those of others. Over the last five years, I have interviewed hundreds of HNAPs, HNAPs, high need for achievement professionals, about this phenomenon and discovered that comparing has reached almost epidemic proportions. This is bad for individuals and bad for companies. When you define success based on external rather than internal criteria, you diminish your satisfaction and commitment. It's telling that in my 500 interviews of HNAPs, High Need to Achieve Professionals, over the past three years, more than 400 of them questioned their own success and brought up the name of at least one other peer who they felt had been more successful than they were. Many of these individuals are considered among the best and brightest, yet they are trapped by their comparing reflex. I'm not good enough. I haven't achieved enough. I'm not in high enough company. Our house isn't big enough. Our car isn't new enough. I want what they have. And we end up comparing, comparing our insides with their outsides. And when we do that, we will always end up losing. And the commandment says, do not covet. How do we relate to that? And more importantly, how do we live that? Maybe the first thing to remember is to underline once again what we've noted earlier in this series, and that is that these commands can also be read legitimately as promises. In other words, that God is saying to his people, we have become covenantally related. In this covenant relationship, as you walk with me, as your life is bathed in my love, as your heart is filled with my spirit, as your desires are formed according to my principles, here's what I'll tell you. This is how you will live. This is what you will do. This is what you will not do. Because of that relationship, that's the reality of how covenantal relationships work, I promise. So we have to keep that in mind as a background. But we also need to notice one other reality. We need to notice that every command has a counterpart. In other words, when we read, you shall not kill, the counterpart of that is an underlining of the sacred value of human life. When we read, you shall not commit adultery, the counterpart to that is an underscoring of the sacred sanctity of marriage. When we read, take every seventh day to stop, 
to rest. Underlining that is the counterpart that says God values your wellness, your wholeness, your spiritual rejuvenation and rest. So the question becomes, what is the counterpart to you shall not covet? I want to suggest to you that it's a very simple answer. Not easy, but simple. The counterpart to not coveting is contentment. Contentment. Contentment is that attitude that says, I have enough. God has given me enough. Contentment. We can't really think about contentment as Christ followers without thinking of Paul in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul writes a verse that many of us have quoted. We've quoted it over and over again and applied it to many different circumstances and situations. The verse is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You may have quoted it just this week. We quote it often. There's a tough exam. I can do all things through Christ. We receive a scary diagnosis. I can do all things through Christ. We're encountering a contentious time in our marriage. I can do all things through Christ. Now, those thoughts are sound. They're biblical. We can do through Christ whatever comes our way. But that's not what Paul is saying in that passage. Paul is actually addressing a very specific situation. He's writing to thank his Philippian friends for the gift that they have given him. Uh, now, I don't recommend responding to gifts that you're given in the same way Paul does because Paul says, I've received your gift. You've finally come through with it. I appreciate it, but I don't need it. <laughs> I really don't have to have it. Don't do that to your spouse. Your spouse gives you a beautiful gift. You rip it open. You say, oh, it's lovely. I love it, but I don't need it. <laughs> Don't do that. That's what Paul does. Now, he does go on to say, now, I do appreciate that you have given it to me, and I appreciate the value it has to me, but I don't have to have it. Well, our question is, why does he not have to have it? I want to read you the words, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. He says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. That's the gift that they have given him. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. I don't have to have this. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Here's what Paul has discovered. Many of us depend on what we possess outwardly to try to fill that deep vacuum within us, that need we have to belong, to be respected, to be loved, to be desired, to be successful. When we're not feeling that way inside, we start reaching for the other gifts in the world around us. We start coveting what other people have under the mistaken assumption, if I can just get those realities... 
If I can just have that new car, that person's job, that house, then I'll be fine. Then I'll finally feel content. But it never happens. In fact, Paul says, here is the secret of my contentment. I finally realize that my contentment has nothing to do with what's going on out here. It's possible to have it all and not be content. It's possible not to have it at all and be content. Here's the secret, he says. I have discovered that when Jesus meets that inner soul hunger, when the soul is satiated and satisfied, then I can live in plenty and enjoy it. I can face want and be content. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Don't forget, contented people don't covet because they have enough. Enough for today. A dear friend, actually it was Milford Harrison, sent me a story. I don't know its origin. I can't even speak to its authenticity, but I do know its lesson is much worth sharing. So listen to what the writer wrote. Recently, I overheard an older father and his adult daughter in their last moments together at the airport. Standing near the security gate, they hugged, and the father said, I love you, and I wish you enough. The daughter replied, Dad, our life together has been more than enough. Your love is all I ever needed. I wish you enough, too, Dad. They kissed, and the daughter left. The father walked over close to where I was seated. Standing there, I could see he wanted and needed to cry. I tried not to intrude on his privacy, but he welcomed me in by asking, Did you ever say goodbye to someone, knowing it would be the last goodbye? Yes, I have, I replied. Forgive me for asking, but why is this the last goodbye? I'm old, he said, and she lives so far away, I have challenges ahead, and the reality is that the next trip back will be for my funeral. When you were saying goodbye, I said, I heard you say, I wish you enough. May I ask what that means? He began to smile. That's a wish that has been handed down the generations. My parents used to say it to everyone. He paused a moment, looking up as if trying to remember the details, and then he smiled even more. When we said, I wish you enough, we were wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. Then turning toward me, he shared the following as if reciting it from memory. I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright, no matter how gray the day may appear. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun even more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive and everlasting. 
I wish you enough pain so that even the smallest joys of life may appear bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get through the final goodbye. And then he began to cry as he walked away. If we wish to lead the life to which the tenth word directs us, we have to understand what it is that makes the soul content. We are contented when we realize that spiritual needs meet spiritual realities. They are met by the presence of Jesus in our hearts. We are content when we realize that what God has given us today is enough for today. We are content when we understand that whatever we may have or lack, when we have Jesus in our hearts, we can do all things. And that, friends, that, that is enough. Gracious God, we are so profoundly, utterly thankful for Jesus, for the way His Spirit satisfies the deepest yearnings of our soul. We're so thankful that You desire us to live lives of contentment, But you not only desire that, you provide the way to live it. Fill us with the grace and the love of Jesus. Because with that, we can do all things. In his blessed name, amen.